G'day and welcome to Property Australia's favourite obsession. My name's Jeremy Cowan and I love property. In fact, we all love property because it's a part of our life every minute of every day. See, we continually touch and feel property, but often in ways we just don't think about. And that's what we're here to discuss today. See, today's episode is a very interesting one and one that I really hope you're going to enjoy. See, I had the pleasure of sitting down and chatting with Annie Hanmer about space and its connection to land and our five drivers. See, Annie is a space fanatic. She's in her final year of a PhD at the University of Sydney's Facility of Space. She's a member of the Space Law Council of Australia and New Zealand. She sits on the Advisory Council for the Space Industry Association of Australia, is a program consultant to the Australian Youth Aerospace Association ASTRA Committee, a member of the Space Generation Advisory Council, Ethics and Human Rights in Space Project, and of course, the host and creator of the highly intellectually entertaining podcast, Space Junk, which begs the question, what on earth, pardon the pun, would a space expert have to add to a property podcast? And the answer is a lot more than you first might expect. See, this podcast is all about our five drivers, infrastructure, technology, population, government and credit, and how they interact in real life. And what this episode will highlight is the importance of government-granted licences. See, this is a driver that is so entwined in our modern economy that it's often taken for granted. The value that is bestowed on landowners via government-granted licences is absolutely enormous because land is priced upon the future capitalisation of its profitability. So the more secure the title or ownership of a piece of land, the further you can capitalise the profitability into the future. So put a different way, if I took control of a piece of land, but my ownership of that land was in dispute, could I realise the full value of that land? And the answer is simply no, because interested parties would be concerned that they would not be able to hold and control that piece of land for perpetuity, so the amount of profit that they could derive from that piece of land will be limited. However, if ownership and control of the same piece of land had been provided to me via a clear title that had been issued by an accepted conventional process, had been challenged and upheld in a court of law and is backed by the full weight of government, then that piece of land will no doubt sell for more. And the value that we as investors derive from the security of our ownership cannot be underestimated. But who owns the moon? And who owns space? And who can profit from celestial mining? See, there's a land grab going on right now in space, right under our noses, and it started with governments and industry grabbing the best orbits for their satellites. In Australia, when we think of rights to a plot of land, we think about the rights to build a structure on it or to grow produce on it. But there are also maybe mineral rights below it that can be sold off by the government to another party. And sure, there may be some air rights above the plot of land, but how far do they extend? To Pluto and beyond? They don't, of course. So who owns that land in adverted commas in space? Understanding this concept ensures that you'll never again take for granted the rights that your title or license bestows on you thanks to our governments. And you'll also start to appreciate the tensions that space holds for all the differing and competing parties who want access to the best lunar orbits, the best locations on the moon, and of course the best asteroids with their abundant metals and minerals. So here to talk about all things space with me is Annie Handmer. Annie, welcome to Property Thanks Australia's me, favourite it's obsession. Great to be here. 
Now, Annie, as a kid, um, I used to go for a walk after school every day to my grandma's place because mum and dad worked. And funnily enough, my grandma's name was actually Annie as well. And I loved watching cars. Yeah, it's funny the way life works out there. She was an Annie Gertrude. And I used to love watching cartoons straight after school. I'm talking primary school here. Um, and my favourite was Wally E. Coyote. So he was my number one guy, and I hated that damn Roadrunner. Um, I don't know what it was about it, but there was something about the Roadrunner that just never sat well with me. But the other guy that I really liked was a guy by the name of Marvin the Martian, who used to land on planets, and I claim this planet in the name of Mars. Isn't that lovely? I wanted to ask you and start with, who owns the moon and how many planets does Mars actually lay claim to? Great question to start off with. Um, so, so to begin with, I think it's helpful to clarify how we might decide who owns anything in space because the short answer to who owns the moon is no one owns the moon. The long answer to who owns the moon is maybe we all own the moon. Um, and somewhere in the middle is probably the reality. So in general, in outer space law, and there is um, international space law, a long and proud tradition of it, we've got five space treaties. There's the Outer Space Treaty, which is 1967. Then you've got the Rescue Agreement, 1968, Liability Convention, 1972, Registration Convention, 1976, and the Moon Agreement of 1984. And the two that are relevant for who owns stuff in space are broadly the Outer Space Treaty, and the Moon Agreement. That's all very complicated technical stuff in there. But essentially what the Outer Space Treaty says is that space is free for the exploration and use by all humankind. It says mankind, but these days we tend to go with humankind. Um, and what that means is that you can't lame, you can't lay claim basically to anything in space, including, and it specifies the moon or other celestial bodies. And a celestial body is anything like an asteroid or a planet, um, basically anything whizzing around in space. So the Outer Space Treaty says that you are able to go and use space, but you cannot claim it as your sovereign territory. Um, now, the Moon Agreement, which came a bit later, is a bit of a follow-up on basically specifying how this works on the moon because people were interested in, okay, well, if I want to go build a base, like what does that look like? Can I do it? Can I use some of the lunar regolith to somehow provide water for my base if I'm there? And essentially, yes, you're allowed to use stuff for scientific purposes or to support a scientific base on the moon, but the moon agreement's very clear that there is no claim of ownership over the moon. Now, the difficulty, of course, for all of you space law geeks out there is that some people say the moon agreement doesn't count because it only has 18 parties. Um, Australia is one of them, whereas the Outer Space Treaty has, as of today, 111 parties. So it's considered to be much more enforceable and much more uh, symptomatic of where we're at. But that said, um, generally, space law says nobody can own the moon. Um, more recently, the US came out with the Artemis Accords and there have been various legal stuff put through by Luxembourg and the US saying, well, you can't own the moon, but if you chip a bit off the moon, you can sell that bit to someone else and you can keep the profits, which raises a really interesting question. And maybe I'll hand it back to this. I mean, when we ask who owns the moon, <laughs> what do we mean by ownership in the first place? Is ownership 
sovereignty or is ownership the ability to build something on it and not have someone else come and kick you off or is ownership the ability to scoop a bit of it up and sell it to someone else and keep the money you get it's a very interesting question and one that keeps space lawyers very busy It's really interesting because, you know, we had this quick discussion before we started that, you know, down here on Earth, us mere Earthlings, um, you know, certainly let's start in, in, in Australia, that if we purchase a plot of land, we get security of title um, and that title brings certain rights um, and, um, you know, those rights are enforceable um, by a government and uh, a court of law and there's a process, a due process that, that one can go through if you feel that those rights have been um, infringed upon. Whereas we're talking about space treaties and discussions and, uh, you know, this is very, very nebulous up in, uh, up in space, isn't it? That, um, you know, you haven't got all the countries that have signed. Um, you don't have um, a court of law as such. You don't have an enforceable system if someone does something wrong. I mean, how how does that all work, Annie? Because, you know, space, you know, is the final frontier, isn't it? That's, um, you know, where, where we're um, venturing to go. So how does yeah, that you know, gel together? It's a massive regulatory challenge. Um, it's something that countries have been grappling with for a long time. Back in the 80s, when the Moon Agreement was written up, there's this little little known article in it called Article 11, which basically says, okay, we're not at the stage where we're technologically able to go and do this stuff. We can't go mining things. We can't go building things in space. But we think we might be in future. So if we, if we get to that point in future, we'll all get together and we'll all discuss what the regime should be to govern it in order to make these decisions. Um, now, that hasn't happened necessarily, but... What we see is increasingly, as we do get to that point of technological readiness, there is increasing pressure from the private sector on governments to provide comfort and provide certainty over what the rights are. And the difficulty is that unlike in Australia, where there's one source of truth, um, so you know if you've got a dispute, you can go through the court system. In international law, states sign up to it. They consent to be bound by it. They can withdraw their consent to be bound by it. It's not to say it isn't enforceable, though. And this is a really complicated thing to understand. But the best analogy I can give is international law is a little bit like a marriage where countries get together and they say, OK, we're going to agree on this thing and we're going to publicly sign up to it. And, um, you know, we're going to try and act within the bounds of what we've agreed now, if you get married and you sign a piece of paper saying you're married, obviously um, that doesn't mean anything. You can go do whatever you want. You don't have to live together. You don't have to do anything. But at a certain point, there is a kind of social understanding among people of what that thing actually means. And so pointing out at a wedding that, you know, there's no way of enforcing this and they might break up anyway, is sort of not really done for that reason. And the same goes with international law. So Yes, in theory, someone can go rogue. Yes, in theory, someone can go and, and you know, build a, a crazy base on the moon and do whatever they want. But firstly, it's expensive. Secondly, they don't really want to. And thirdly, if they did, there would be pressure from other countries to not do that, please. Um, and that pressure exists in all sorts of forms. That could be um, 
you know, you, you could do some sort of diplomatic sanctions, you could do economic sanctions, you could do strongly worded letters. Um, Kevin Rudd could pick up the phone and, and ring the boss of Pfizer. You know, all sorts of things could be done um, in the name of, yes. of doing all of that. But that said, um, increasingly since about 2016, we've seen some national governments pass legislation that gives what they see as more certainty to their private sector in especially in space resource exploitation, saying that, yes, if you mine, we say that you get to keep those profits. And that's a challenge for international law because until it happens, there's no way in which it can be challenged. There are courts. So in theory, if someone from Luxembourg went and scooped up a bit of the moon and then sold it to someone from the US and said, I keep the profits, in theory, Australia could go to the courts, um, the international law courts and say, hey, we actually don't think you can do that. And then over many years, there would be a big case and there would be discussion of it and there could be a ruling. The challenge of that is, of course, that Australia doesn't really want to do that because Australia is quite good at remote mining, um, you know, in our own country. And we'd like to get on board with that because it might be a good opportunity. So these are the things that have to be weighed up. And for governments, there is a challenge in remaining... Um, in line with international obligations that they've signed up to, say, in the 60s and 70s, and also allowing their private sectors to develop in a way that is commensurate with financial stability. There are just so many questions that pop into my mind <laughs> when, you, when you talk there, <laughs> Annie. That, <laughs> It's um, and I don't mean to come across sure. as the the naysayer or or whatever in this. I'm I'm merely just trying to I guess um, encourage uh, you to um, you know I explain things better. But um, I guess the first thing, Thad Roberts did did Thad Roberts get taken to court? Do you know he was a um, no, you know, tell do, me. do you know that story? The um, have you read the book? Have you no. ever read the book Sex on the Moon? Oh, Annie, Annie, you got to read. It's a it's a really interesting book. It's Sex on the Moon by um, by Ben Mesrix, mm -hmm. I think is his name, and it's about this. They claim it was the um, uh, the world's um, richest heist um, about this kid who basically. Um, went to to NASA to become an astronaut and fell in love with a girl. And to impress her, he stole a whole lot of moon rocks, uh, moon samples, original moon samples that he then tried to sell on a Belgium geology site. And of course, he got caught and went to jail and whatever. But it's a it's a it's a really interesting story. And um, uh, my understanding was that yeah, that the that the that the American government sort of wrapped that one up. Um, but it's I guess the, the the point is that there's a situation where, um, you know, you've got someone who has gone rogue in a very small way. I get no, I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't belittle the the um, scientific um, or the degradation that that occurred by him stealing those minerals. Um, you know, they are you know very precious resources that that have you know come back from the moon, but. Um, you know, there's an example of, you know, human nature, um, you know, going a bit rogue. Um, and that is unfortunately, you know, part of what, um, you know, makes us the creatures that we are, you know, the good and the bad. I can see it looks like you're Googling away there to try to no, have a, well, a look okay, at so you. This, this uh, raised in my mind that um, there is a bit of a history of a very strange 
legal status of the samples of moon rock. And I I thought in the back of my head, I remembered that there was a legal case and it turns out that there was um, a legal case uh, in 2003, which was basically about who could, who could, who could a piece of lunar rock be given to, um, who could own it and who had the power to give it. Um, it is a really complicated issue. And like in terms of contested bits of rock in the world, the, the lunar samples are really up there because nobody owns them, but at the same yeah, time okay. they're, they're held by the US. So this is the complex thing. And they're, they're open to yeah. use. There's um, all sorts of arrangements there to try and be within the spirit of the thing. But, yeah, there is a case. It's called, um, uh, oh, you can look it up. It's United States and one lucite ball containing lunar material. So if you want to look up that legal case, go for it. You said it's yeah. around 2003, did you? Because I think that it was around 2002 that this uh, right. this actually happened. This one was to happened, do with a, a, a piece of lunar material so it, gifted to Honduras. So not quite the same as someone um, stealing right. it and giving it to his, yeah, okay. uh, his love interest. But still, uh, as, this is the thing, though. Space, space is weird. It inspires people to do weird things. It inspires billionaires to decide that they're going mm. to spend loads of money to go and try and like just float around and look at things. It's a very odd thing. And I think um, there's a good sociological study to be done on the effects of space on, um, on, on a young person in love. It's definitely a very odd situation there. Yeah. So tell me this then, Annie, why do we go to space? It's a great question. Um, I'm not sure. I think I think I've tried to understand this also through my PhD studies, um, and the best answer I can come up with is because we can. I mean, you, you can say why did we go to space, and we went to space because um, maybe because of politics was a good answer to that. Um, Mm. Why do we go to yeah. space? Now we have the technical capability. And to be honest, most of the time when we're going to space, um, I just did those little inverted quote things with my hands. This is a podcast. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> uh, but most of the time when we're doing it, we're actually sending satellites. We're sending um, non-human objects. The yeah. question of why do we want to do human space flight, I think is a, a really core cool one to ask. Because people who want to do it assume that everybody wants to do it. And people who don't want to do it assume that no one should want to do it. And there's a, a real tension there that exists. I mean, uh, my personal view on things is that we can go a long way with robots. And there's no reason ever to send a human to, say, colonize, if I use that word, colonize Mars. Um, there's, no, there's no reason to do it. There's no ethical imperative. There's no moral requirement. There's no scientific justification I can come up with. The only reason to do it is because it's cool so, and we want to do it. That's the only reason I can come up with that I think about, logically holds. So I've got a quote here from a guy by the name of Warren Ellis who once said, 
the, sim- uh, the single simple reason why human spaceflight is necessary is that stated as plainly as possible, keeping all your breeding pairs in one place is a foolish one. Uh, is a foolish yeah, way to run. But a I mean, species. it raises a question for us: is is what we're doing on Earth running a species? If that was the case, like we don't do yeah. breeding programs, we don't do eugenics, or, or we we don't you know we don't think very highly of that in Australia at least. Um, we're not running a species. And what's the end game here that this guy's talking about? Like, what's the goal? Is the goal to create as many humans as possible? Um, if that's the goal, then we're going about it in the wrong way because fertility rates are dropping and so on. Is the goal to create re- the most clever humans as possible? Well, re- again, we're doing a, a pretty poor job of it. I mean, this is... This is the difficulty when people talk about the necessity of sending humans out into space. There's this idea that there's some requirement on us to spread ourselves across the galaxy as if we're a, a nice chocolate. I read I read once that Jeff Bezos, um, as a – I think it was a 17-year-old or something um, – wrote that, you know, he had this, one of his visions, life visions was to, you know, colonize the moon to actually set up Mm. resorts there um, and have it as a, as a, as a place of refuge, I guess, that you could go and, um, you know, have a holiday essentially, um, almost like a theme park on the moon, I guess. Um, And I find that really, um, I mean, that's not where how my mind works and it's not where my mind goes, but I find it really interesting that someone like that who is um, so wealthy and, and driven and obviously involved um, in, in a space program himself, that you know, that's something that he wants to achieve. And so I sort of question whether it's right or wrong, how does that not occur? Because someone who's driven, who wants to achieve it, you know, will go for that goal and at some point yeah, it will be done. This is a question I get asked a lot, which is like, well, there's nothing to stop it happening. It's inevitable that such and such it will happen, you know, whether it's building a theme park on the moon or mining asteroids or whatever else. I suppose the only thing that stops it being done is if enough people think that it's a silly idea. Um, the moon's actually not a very nice place and... Yeah. So before you go there, can I just pick you up on that? Because I think that's a really important question or, or, or because when you say, are there enough people to say we don't want to do it? It seems to me that, as you said, people either want to go to space or they don't. People seem to have this interest in space. You know, we love Star mm. Wars and Star Trek and um but, you know, when it comes to actually lobbying and having a movement, the space industry is driven by the corporates and some very well-funded um, uh, nations. And it seems to me that if it's driven by corporates and, and, and well-funded nations, that they will derive the outcome that they want because the rest of society 
is just letting it happen in the background and it'll just occur without yeah, I any mean, input from you're them. hitting here on the, the the fundamental challenge of capitalism which which is that the holders of capital wield power um and that governments are are subject to that power it's true i mean the whole world could be turned into a paperclip factory tomorrow if there was enough lobbying power from the paperclip manufacturers and it's true that it, with space in particular, although if you look on Instagram, you go onto YouTube, you watch Carl Sagan, whatever you do, um, you'll think that it's all about beautiful stars and planets and so on, that most of it really at that economic level is driven by military interest. It's the Lockheed Martins, it's the Northrop Grumman's, it's the big industry who are running this stuff. That's probably just true. And the interest in space is maybe because it's the the high ground, um, militarily speaking. There's enormous benefit to, to be gained in running military operations when you've got um, a good GNSS system, so GPS or GLOMAS or um, BIDO. There's a lot to be gained from having satellite-based surveillance and espionage capabilities to listen in on things. There's all sorts of things that space is very useful for, and we're doing those things. Um, so, so when I say if enough people want it, I suppose I'm relying on the idea that maybe at some point enough people will wake up to the fact that it's going on, and maybe at some point they'll say, hmm, this isn't a good idea. And we... We are very cynical in 2021. Um, we've had a really tough go of it recently, but most people have never actually been asked whether they think we ought to be doing all the things we're doing in space. And we have managed to curtail national interest and private sector interest in space in the past. The Outer Space Treaty itself was a magnificent achievement because it codified that the USSR and America agreed not to put nukes in space. Now, sitting here in 2021, looking back, we say, mm. well, of course, yeah. that would have been idiotic. But when you're sitting there in 1965 yeah. and you're seeing Sputnik happen, you're seeing the space race yeah. happen and you're, you're getting a little worried, um, that was a huge achievement. And that was because enough people recognised that it was not in their interests to have nukes in space. So flash forward, say, another 20 years, is it in our interests to have a theme park on the moon? I don't know. You know, maybe it's fun. But for a lot of people in the world, the moon has cultural and um, religious and social significance, and putting a theme park on it would be the equivalent of, like, putting a, a, a McDonald's playland on Uluru. It's something that we just wouldn't do. We just as a society, would not accept anymore. Um, I think it remains to be seen with the moon. Maybe maybe I'm wrong. I mean, maybe people do want to go to a theme park on the moon. Um, but I think there's got to be that demand there in order to make it happen because the money has to come from somewhere. Billionaires can bankroll a, a whole lot of stuff, um, but they're not silly i mean they're going to bankroll things that have some sort of return in them if they're going by economic principles yeah so my feeling my strong feeling on this is that um there's all sorts of crazy ideas out there some of them will stick some of them won't 
whether or not they're legal will have something to do with it, but whether or not there's public appetite for them will have more to do with it. What you said about getting Russia and America together to not put nukes in space, I reckon is like that's that's a really important point. And I have a one of my uh, I don't know I won't say pet hates. That's probably a bit you know I don't like the word hate anyway. But um, it frustrates me when people look back in history and they look at the event but they don't think about the circumstance of the time and that what you said now is like like we look now and think of course you're not going to put nukes in space that's ridiculous but in the time in the 60s then there was a very different feeling a very different culture a very different outlook a very different understanding which you know drove a lot of fear and I just wonder too that you know like how do we how do we frame all this legal framework as to who can do what and who can do, you know, when they can do it, et cetera, when we don't even understand space, we don't understand what is actually out there, we don't understand what's potentially equitable and what's not because we don't understand the resources, we don't understand how they're going to be used. Um, there's so much that we that we don't get and yet we're trying to draft legislation for technology that, you know, hasn't been invented. To me, it's a bit like... You know, if we were trying to write regulations for the internet, you know, back in the early 1980s when we're playing Pac-Man and Frogger. I mean, it just, it it just, you know what I mean? It's just, it's very, yeah, yeah, it is. It's super hard. This is, this is one of those big issues, I think, that government faces in every era. Um, How do you regulate emerging technology? I think they're grappling with it, not just with space technology, but even things like drones, um, all of the Internet of Things stuff that's coming out. It's a big challenge. Social media is is a massive challenge. And the question that comes to my mind is, I think it's always going to be really difficult to decide when to go and when to wait, what to say and what not to say, how to go about it. The the people drafting space law in the 60s were pretty smart and um, and I I love to remember that they're real people because sometimes I I forget it and then I have to go and like look at the pictures of them all sitting around with their papers in their little suits (laughs) and discussing things. Um, (laughs) And they came up with, instead of writing legislation, they wrote guiding principles. So the the Outer Space Treaty is actually a set of principles by which we agree to act. That's very different from your your property legislation that tells you that you need to have a dryer installed and that you can't have a toilet that goes off a kitchen. Like that's, that's a very different form of law. And sometimes I think the word law is a little bit um, misleading because it might give the wrong impression. But at its core... The point of space law is, if you like, if if you read the preamble and if you read all of the framing that they did around it, because framing is important, was to prevent conflict. And they have these wordings. So they said, determined to promote on the basis of equality, the further development of cooperation among states in the exploration and use of the moon of other celestial bodies, desiring to prevent the moon from becoming an area of international conflict 
and bearing in mind the benefits which may be derived from the exploitation of the natural resources of the moon and other celestial bodies. I mean, this is the framing that sets up the moon agreement, for example. And the whole thing there is saying, we want to do this thing. We recognise that it's something that states will want to do, but we want to do it in a way that is not going to provoke more conflict because we recognise that conflict comes out of inequality and especially wealth inequality. If you've got some countries that can afford to send something to the moon, dig something up and sell it to another rich country, then you've got a lot of countries in the world and a lot of people who are not getting access to that benefit. You have a, a divide happen in terms of um, just economics internationally, and then bam, conflict happens. So all of this is coming out of, of a context of not wanting to have conflict, wanting to avoid conflict if possible. In 2021, do we feel the same? Is there that mood? I'm not sure. And I think we sometimes forget the point behind these things. Lawyers are really good at reading reading the words and finding loopholes and arguing that, you know, that, that it should be allowed. Property law is no exception from what I know. It's um, but you've got to remember what's the point Absolutely. of the thing. What's to quote the castle, what's what's the vibe of the thing? That's, that's my favourite resource on property law. Oh, we could be in strife. <laughs> What's the vibe? So, so this makes it really, really interesting and really difficult that, um, um, you know, that exploration versus, you know, exploitation, um, you know, talking about space mining, about, you know, who who benefits, who who funds it, who derives the technology. Um, yeah, they're, you know, difficult questions then that, that come up and, and there must be a lot of uncertainty within the industry as to what, you know, what, what, how do they achieve what they yeah, want to achieve? enormous uncertainty. I mean, we do have, um, so Australia did a review of its space legislation in 2018, I believe it came out. So we do have updated legislation. It is aimed to provide more information. There are all sorts of really um, arbitrary kind of definitions of what's a rocket, what's a high-powered rocket, um, it, what's a model rocket, how high can you launch things, when do you have to ask permission and get licenses, all of those things. Uh, to an extent, it's always going to be arbitrary with laws. There's always going to be a line that has to be drawn. Yeah. So yeah. what Australia's space law tries to do is draw that line and then at the same time acknowledge that technology is developing and there may need to be different approaches taken as that technology develops. Um, and the space agency, I think, is doing a, a really impressive job of trying to work directly with industry to make that happen. But it is challenging. I mean, think about launching a rocket out of Australia. Where do you launch it from? There's a few sites that have been earmarked, but it's it's a complicated thing. It's not it's it's not necessarily dangerous anymore, but it's certainly not safe um, in the same way that that something like yeah. air travel we consider to be still risky but relatively safe. We're still not at that point, and people would like to get to the point where where space activities are as everyday as getting on an aeroplane used to be. Um, but but we're still we're still 
working on that. And I think we have to recognize that we are, as you say, at this frontier and legal regimes and so on exist and are operating and are working in a lot of cases, but there are going to be things to be ironed out along the way. So I asked the question before, yeah. like, why do we go to space? And maybe another question that I pose to you is, what benefits do we derive from going to space? And I mean that as much as, um, you know, the obvious ones where, um, you know, yeah. my mobile phone works. Um, you know, I can work out where I'm going in my car because of the GPS, et cetera. And, and I'm thinking like the technology um, – uh, you know, the technologies that uh, well, didn't it derive the ballpoint pen as there's, well. There's a, um, a whole lot of mythology they... around things that were developed through the space program, because for some reason we decided that that NASA had to justify the huge expense of putting people on the moon. And as a result, um, historically, as we look back, we say, oh, yes, <laughs> but we got the ballpoint pen. So it was all worth it. Um, yeah. <laughs> To what extent that is a, a, a rational way of approaching things, I don't know. <laughs> Ultimately, we funded this thing to put people on the moon and we did that. Um, so whether or not a ballpoint pen arose as a result seems right. neither here nor there. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. But you know what I'm, where I'm coming from is that there's a lot of benefits that are derived from uh, the technological advancements of, of having, uh, you know, when humans are, are faced with, limited resources and challenging environments and they need to find a solution, it is, you know, why we're the apex predator, that we have an, an amazing ability to, um, to innovate, um, create, um, and space, you know, there must be enormous benefits that are derived, um, you know, for the everyday person by, you know, what is happening with, with, with space because of the uh, innovation totally. that's having to occur. I mean, someone recently said to me, um, I think it was Tim Parsons perhaps from the Space Industry Association, said every dollar that is spent in space stays on Earth. That's, that's a good one to remember. So financially there's benefit. But in terms of broader okay. benefit, there's all sorts of really interesting things that we're developing, even in Australia. Um, there's a company called HEO Robotics, which is developing the technology to fly satellites up to other satellites in space and take pictures of them. And eventually they hope to be able to do what's called on-orbit servicing. So that's where... I thought you were going to say <laughs> well, on-orbit well, selfies. Well, you can do that, yeah, yeah. I think um, <laughs> Elon Musk's Tesla already did one of those. <laughs> yeah, Don't well. tell Kevin Rudd. He loves the selfie. That's um, advancing mankind, isn't it? <laughs> um, so, so, I mean, that's really cool. And the reason it's cool is not just because you can you know, fly up and fiddle with something in space. It's cool because we have a, an issue with proliferation of space debris. We have limited orbital slots. We have a lot of space junk whizzing around, filling up those slots and also causing a danger to existing space infrastructure. If you can repair something in space rather than having to replace it, then you're a long way towards having more sustainable uses of space. So that's a really good development. Um, 
there's all sorts of really cool stuff happening as well with basically using our existing resources more efficiently. And I think this is something that happens in a lot of markets. But um, one company that just won a bunch of money as a grant is called Alula. Um, and you can look them up. But basically what they do is repackage and sell the data from satellites that aren't using it. So if, you, if you're a country launching a satellite because you want to, say, um, monitor the Great Barrier Reef, so the satellite's looking at the Great Barrier Reef was going over, but for the rest of its orbit, you're not using any of that imagery. You don't care what's going on on the other side of the world. You've launched it to monitor the Great Barrier Reef, or you've launched it to monitor weather patterns, but it also happens to be taking beautiful imagery as it flies around in its orbit. So what this company is doing is taking that excess imagery or that excess data repackaging it and then selling it on to people so they can then get access to it when it's not in use by someone else. Those sorts of efficiencies and benefits I think are really important because they make space technologies and space, um, the benefits you can get from having something in orbit available to a wider range of people. You don't have to launch your own satellite. You can just piggyback off someone else's satellite and get their data. So in terms of benefits, that everyday mm -hmm. people will see. I think those are two examples where right now you might be sitting there thinking, oh, that sounds a bit random. Like, why does that matter? But in future, that will dramatically drive down the cost of your services that you use and also allow you to use better services. Um, in agritech, if you've got really good GPS systems um, or what they're called as GNSS systems more broadly, that are able to resolve down to one centimetre. So it knows that you're standing one centimetre to the left, one centimetre to the right, that your drone that you're using to water your crops is exactly where it is at all times. You can do precision agriculture. You can do um, much more sustainable and efficient farming practices, which is basically you can go plant to plant and give that plant exactly what it needs. Uh, you can monitor crops. You can do all sorts of self-driving remote operations, do all sorts of things where it's dangerous for humans to be. There are so many benefits that come from space technology. And I mean, Jeremy, one of the things that happens is because I'm the sort of person who wanders around talking about preventing conflict and the basis of equality and sharing resources and the cultural significance of the moon and, and basically saying, well, let's hold up and think about this thing. Um, I do sometimes get cast as a bit of a naysayer of, of you know, oh, this Annie, she wants us to have no fun. She wants us not to go to space. She doesn't believe in humanity, whatever else. Far from it. Um, I just think, let's think about, let's think about what we're doing. And as you say, ask a question, instead of why are we going to space, ask what benefits does going to space have for people? What benefit could it have for people? And not just uh, rich white people. Like, what about people who are, living in places where they don't have access to space technology. How can we provide that equality? How can we provide more access? Um, how can we involve them more in discussions about what we're doing? And if I might just have a little moment to, to really bring this point home, I get really uppity uh, when people say that the Moon Agreement, for example, is not a real treaty or it's a failed treaty, because firstly, that's false. It only needs five signatories to come into force. It has 18. We're all good. Um, well, it has 18 parties. We're all fine with that. So the Moon Agreement is a real treaty. But why people say it isn't real is because the US and Russia and China and the UK and India haven't signed it. 
and they say, well, Australia signed it, but yeah. uh, and France has signed it, but uh, and all the other <laughs> countries that have signed it, well, they're all developing countries who can't go to space anyway, so it doesn't matter. To which I say, the United Nations is not just about America, China, Russia, UK, and India. The United Nations is about the United Nations of the world. And the Moon Agreement is one example of an agreement that has been chosen by a group of countries who think that it's important. And because they're not the loudest voice in the room or the richest space player, doesn't mean that their voice shouldn't be listened to. In that context, for what that treaty means, their signature is worth exactly the same amount as the signature of the USA. And we need to remember that. So um, when it comes to making decisions about space, I think it's it's good for all of us to, to think in those terms and to remember that um, we all live on a planet in, the, in a solar system, in a galaxy, in the Milky Way, somewhere in the universe, maybe one of many universes, and not to get too caught up on um, our own little planetary scuffles and power balances in the process. So that's a pretty interesting segue into my next thought that, um, you know, as earthlings, we're provided with these beautiful, pure images of the earth from space. Um, You know, they're always silent and empty and clean and, you know, the vision of our beautiful blue planet. Um, And they're pictures that are provided, you know, without population contaminants, um, you know, without people, without degradation, etc. You know, we see space as like a vast, empty vacuum. That's how it's been, um, um, you know, portrayed to us. Um, And as you said, there's a lot of space junk already that's out there, um, which must be a, it must be a massive problem for the space industry. A huge problem for the space industry. Yeah, we've only been going a few years there too. That's the, you know, that's it must be of of significant concern. Humans are wonderful at polluting things. We're really good at it. Really good at it. Um, We can't seem to help ourselves. And yeah, the the space space environment is full of chunks of space debris. Um, You've got. the the estimates vary because um, it's all, this is complicated, but it's a lot of it's very classified tech tracking stuff in space. But yeah, generally NASA says 500,000 bits of tracked space debris. Um, There's a lot of it out there and it's, it's dangerous. It can run into things. Um, It's a problem that we have to grapple with. Yes. Yeah. It's something the space industry is thinking really seriously about because we're going to have to, first of all, avoid creating more debris. And second of all, maybe we're going to have to find ways of getting rid of space debris. And thirdly, if we're doing that, we have to decide which bits are debris and which bits have some sort of significance um, historically or that we want to keep for some reason. And and, um, Alice Gorman uh, out at Flinders University, the space archaeologist, has done a lot of work on talking about what those items might be that are not actually just rubbish. So 
yeah, humans are good at polluting. We've done it in space. We continue to do it in space. We are getting much better, though, at debris mitigation, which is where you create satellites that are designed to have end-of-life um, activities. We create smaller satellites. We're creating... So they're like an iPhone or a washing machine that yeah. just break down after <laughs> a few years. Sort of. I mean, <laughs> it's things like you retain <laughs> enough fuel that when the satellite stops functioning, you can um, either push your satellite into a graveyard orbit or you can push your satellite back towards Earth and it can burn up in the atmosphere as it comes in through re-entry. So in the past, we just launched stuff and we were like, oh, space is big, it's fine. And we launched these massive satellites like the size of a bus, um, which probably had as much computing power as a calculator. And now we're launching chips that are um, built into CubeSats, for example, that are so much more clever. Um, they might have be made of materials that can more easily burn up. They might be um, so, so less toxic. Um, this is important stuff. I mean, there have been examples of radioactive debris falling out of space and contaminating huge areas in the past. This, this is something we need to think about, and we're thinking about it. So there's a great amount of uh, planning that's going into using space better and in a way that is more sustainable. And that isn't just good from a kind of um, greeny perspective. It's good from a, an industry perspective as well. So I heard you speak um, uh, at, at a conference. Um, it was a YouTube video that I that I saw, um, and you used the example that um, you know, like uh, getting back to this idea of space law and the space law not really being tested, and <clears throat> and you know, there's being treaties, but we really don't know where we stand. That that a French satellite was yeah. hit by a piece of space junk. Um, and as I understand it, um, you know, me being the space lawyer that I am, because I've, you know, <laughs> watched, a, watched a video of, of Annie, um, that, that whoever launches, what, you know, the country that launches is responsible for that piece of equipment that goes up. So if it breaks up and, and, and it is in turns into shrapnel in space, then they're responsible for the damage um, that occurs. And, and I bring this up because my understanding is that there was a French satellite that was hit by a piece of space junk. They were ready to go to um, take it to to space court, whatever that might be. I didn't quite get that part of it, but then they worked out that there was their own space junk that hit it. So, you know, it never got tested. So I guess my point is that, you know, we say that countries are responsible for what they put up there, but I mean, how do we know what country is responsible for what piece of space junk and you, you know how you know how do we enforce that they actually are responsible for that well, first of all 10 out of 10 uh top of the class that was a great summary it was no, a pretty was random a explanation of, um, of it <laughs> yeah the liability regime that exists in space um so to your question how do we how do we know what's in space um we there's a, a body called the United Nations Office of Outer Space Affairs, or UNUSA, or ANUSA, depending on uh, how you want to say it. And actually, at uh, yeah, I um, like ANUSA. At ANUSA, <laughs> there is a guy who is called Robert, 
And I learned this recently that Robert's responsible for entering into the registry um, all of the objects that are launched and that are registered. So when you launch an object, you're meant to notify the United Nations office. They enter it into a registry and then they hold that registry um, as a kind of a record of everything that's in space. In addition, you're meant to have your own registry nationally of all of the objects in space and you're meant to maintain that. Um, also, a lot of countries that do space things do something called space situational awareness, where they use uh, telescopes and lasers and so on to track what's in space, identify it, and they have their own registry of what they think other people have launched. So on the basis of that, we have a, a kind of a few sources of truth as to what's in space. Um, it is quite funny, though, because sometimes you have a, a chunk of something and it'll hit something and you're not really sure whose it is or where it got, where it came from. And <laughs> you have to do a lot of mathematical backtracking and analysis of orbits to try and work backwards to decide where it might have come from. And in this um, example that you raised with the French satellite, yeah, they discovered it was actually a piece of debris from an earlier French launch. And as a result, they decided not to press charges on themselves. There have been other cases. There was the Cosmos Iridium collision, um, which was a, a, a Russian satellite colliding with an American satellite. Um, in that case, because of the launching regime. So, so a launching state is anyone who launches or procures the launch. And in that case, you can go and read about it. But basically, um, they had uh, this weird situation where they'd sort of procured each other's launches. And so they both kind of had claims of liability over both things because they were all launching states. And they decided not to go ahead with um, pressing for, for damages. But there have been cases where we have done that. Um, there's Skylab, which a piece fell in Western Australia and... The council issued the yeah yeah I remember yeah that as so a kid the, the, the council in West yeah. Australia I can't remember which one it was you can look it up um, issued the, issued NASA with a fine for littering which um, to my knowledge remains unpaid <laughs> and outstanding uh, there was also Cosmos nine five four which was a Russian or Soviet spy satellite. Uh, which had a little nuclear power source on board, which went rogue and fell over parts of northern Canada um, and required a huge operation to recover the radioactive bits of debris. Uh, and obviously there were some difficulties with the local Inuit populations as well, who were not hugely familiar with the concepts of what radioactive things were, um, but needed to be informed and, and weren't really, and that was a big problem as well. But yeah, so the Canadian government got in contact with the Russian government and said, you owe us money. And the Russian government did actually pay up um, a portion of that money. So we don't have formal examples of it being tested where things went wrong. But what I would say is we have a lot of examples of people acting in compliance with it. So acting in a way that they try not to have things run into things because they know that they would be liable if it were to occur. And that in itself is also an example of this thing operating quite successfully. Does, does that answer your question? I'm not sure if it does, but, um, but, but hopefully there's something in there of interest. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. Cause I, so I'm, um, I've got the pleasure at the moment of um, teaching my 16 right. year old to drive. So 
you know, it's all pretty clear. You know, you get the book and you, you know, a stop sign's a stop sign. You give way to your left and, um, you know, that's the speed limit and et cetera. But like, so who gets right away in space? You know, is, is it because I've got, you know, is it is it that classic example of, um, uh, you know, whoever's there first, you know, makes the rule, you know, he who holds the goals makes the rule sort of thing, like my satellite's here, so this is my sat- this is my space, this is my orbit, yeah. you're, you're not allowed to touch it or, you know what I mean, Annie? So yeah, how <laughs> does funny, that all actually, work? It makes me think of um, watching a roundabout in Paris, like who gets right of way on the roundabout in Paris? Um, <laughs> that's, that's it. Yeah. That's it. I'll go to Vietnam. <laughs> that's it. I just seem to, no one, everyone just seems to work together and it just yeah, works, no, but it's chaos. Absolutely. And in space, this is called space traffic management or STM. And it's a whole area of um, operations. It's something that governments spend a lot of money and time working on because they don't want things running into things. There's a few different regimes for geostationary orbit. Um, the International Telecommunications Union, the ITU, regulates those slots and countries have to apply to have a slot and then they've got a set amount of time in which they have to launch something into it. And if they don't, it goes back into the pool and reallocated. Um, so that's sort of one way of deciding who gets to go where, but that's that's a very set orbit. When we're talking about normal space, uh, we're figuring it out. We're figuring it out. I mean, in general... There was a case of the SpaceX uh, Starlink satellite that was going to run into something and there was a, an email chain that went around basically being like, oh, you move, no, you move, no, you move. And then finally someone moved. Um, yeah, I, I, I expect that this won't be resolved until there are a couple of high-profile collisions and there will have to be a more, um, a more fulsome way of running it but it is a new-ish issue only from the standpoint that we've only recently got to the point where we can actually manoeuvre satellites in orbit, uh, like cheap satellites. So we, we have, we're building them with the technology not just to launch them and have them sit there and maybe they um, use their boosters to keep their orbit, but we can actually say, okay, I'm going to run into you in two days, so I'm going to move to this orbit and you move to that orbit. Um, and we can make that happen and we can track it so we know that we're going to run into someone in two days because we have computer models that give us conjunction warnings. Um, yeah. So we've got space we traffic yes, controllers now. And wow. It's not really a centralised system and maybe it needs to be at some point. Um, it remains to be seen how it's going to work. At the moment, it works just. Uh, but, but yeah, it's, it's a confusing area for sure. So I kind of ask that sort of question because the whole idea of, you know, who owns the moon and who has the resources and who has the rights, you know, we seem to be talking a lot about that sort of stuff and and minerals in space. But, you know, there is a massive, I was going to say land grabbers, what I would call it, but, you know, space grabbers as, as such for, um, you know, those who can get satellites, you know, the, 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 the first up are going to get the best orbit. And I use the example of um, Elon Musk's Starlink. And I don't know a lot about this project, but my understanding is that they are, there's a lot of very small low orbit satellites that are being put up into the system, um, into space. And 
you know, to me that is just a classic land grab as that he's just taken that space and he's going to monopolise it. Now, it might be of benefit to uh, mankind, etc., but, you know, it's one of those things where, sure, he's spent the money to create the satellites and, and launch them and, and all the tech that goes with it, but as far as actually the space that he has um, acquired, essentially, um, and is now occupying, there's, you know, that has huge implications for everyone else that wants to put up satellites or launch through those satellites and, and you know, that's, you know, how has that been yeah, dealt with? Yeah, fabulous example. Um, wish I'd thought of it myself. So thank you. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll file it away for later. No, this is something that is a serious issue in international space law. Um, actually. Because sorry to jump in. It's the way in which I look at it that, that, those, those, and this is why I wanted yeah. you to come on the, this podcast is because it does seem bizarre that you know we've got a a, a space junkie um, you know on a property podcast, but there is no different to what Elon Musk has done there in space compared to the building that sits at whatever it might be, twenty two Pitt Street. That twenty two Pitt Street operates or occupies that plot of land, and they have rights that are that that. Um, you know, A, because they're there, but B, because, you know, the government granted rights and that gives them the right to use that space for commercial activities and obviously it derives a value because of that. But Elon Musk has done exactly the same thing without paying for space. He's just acquired it like, you know, a, a, a yeah, pioneer into a this new is frontier. The challenge. If space belongs to everyone, how do we manage the tragedy of the commons or how do we stop someone claiming chunks of it um, by proxy. And there are some lawyers working on this issue and basically saying this is equivalent to a proxy claim. This is unlawful under international law. But without the appetite to, like, pursue that in international courts, I think it's, um, it's a difficult one to approach. Uh, uh, oh, how to... The problem is it, it sets a, a precedence right? then, doesn't it? announcements coming out of China saying that they're going to do something very similar. Um, ultimately, the person responsible or the body responsible for regulating SpaceX and Starlink is the US government through their offices. They have an office that manages um, launches and they give approval or they deny approval for launches. So basically SpaceX goes to them and says, we want to launch 20,000 Starlink satellites in the next X months. Um, this is the details. That office then gets to say yes or no, and they've chosen to say yes. To me, this gets at an even bigger question, um, which is what is the role of government when it comes to regulating private sector interests and especially doing it with regard to the interests of other governments? That is a huge question that is arising with the globalization of our world. And it's something we see with, say, the regulation of Facebook or the regulation of um, uh, what's it called? Uh, artificial in intelligence, machine learning. Yeah. Um, oh, facial AI recognition and stuff. technology. Yeah. yeah. Um, a lot of our activities yeah. now cross borders and in space it's easy to look at it because there's a physical representation of that. We can say that satellite is over Australia right now and it's not an Australian satellite. That's a funny thing. That's something to look at. Um, but in the cyberspace, 
we've been doing this for for many years of things bridging across jurisdictions and we haven't figured it out and to be honest I don't think it's a space issue I think you're quite right when you say this is the same issue as what's happening in Pitt Street or whatever else this is this is a fundamental issue of where what is government's responsibility to regulate private sector interests and whose interests are they representing when they do so? Um, that's something I don't think that I can solve and I don't think it's something that space is going to solve for us. I think that that is an enduring concern that we've had for millennia. It might solve Jeff Bezos's um um, vision of colonising, you know, the um, uh, theme park on the moon, though, that we might not be able to leave the planet because there'll be That's too many satellites true. That's very true. orbiting above us. <laughs> and aside from anything else, I mean, um, you know, you, you, you might get permission to build a building in Sydney, but if it's an ugly building, then people are going to, uh, people are going to say that's a really yeah. ugly building. And the, the, the same is true. You know, you might get away with building a theme park on the moon, but to what end? Do you really, like, to Jeff Bezos, do you really want to be remembered for that? That's that's not a good thing to be remembered for. <laughs> that's that's something to, to really think about in terms of taste well. more than anything else, I think. But it's not all, I mean, I've sort of sat yeah. here a little bit devil's advocate to try and provoke you a little bit. And I gotta say it's not all bad bad, is it? I mean, there's a lot of really um there's a lot of really good things. You know, obviously the tech that comes out of it, um um the the going to space, you know, it, it definitely pushes mankind on. It it creates all sorts of advancements. It's a it's a, it's a wonderful thing. I think it's you know, I think it's really exciting. I, even um um, I, I was reading about when um, uh, when Buzz and um, what's his name? I've forgotten the other guy, Neil. When Neil and Buzz were um, hopping around on the moon and they tried to put the flag into the moon's crust and they actually struggled to get it in very far because of the, um, uh, the lunar dust. And my understanding is when they actually – took off and left the joint, they knocked the flag over that um, the exhaust system actually blew the flag over. And and I, I mentioned that because, you know, we talked, we've talked about, you know, the resources, space resources and stuff. But one of the reasons that that happened is that, that apparently lunar dust, and again, I'm no expert in this, but apparently lunar dust um, has very sharp edges, whereas, you know, sand in a... Um, uh, in a in a desert is very round because the the wind blows and the 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 sand rolls. And I bring this up because I f I've when I read this I found it really interesting. I I did a um, an episode uh, a little while back with a gentleman by the name of Vince Beisner, and it was called the Sand Mafia. And it's about how um, you know we're running out of sand in um, in the world because you know our whole world is built upon sand. You know concrete is the is the construction methodology that we use and. and and we can't use um, desert sand because it's too round. We need to have jagged edges with the um, the sand that we use, which is why they use sand from riverbeds and seabeds, etc. Because it um, uh, it's structurally much more sound. And when I read that um, uh, the boys had trouble putting the flag, and I thought, Annie, here's a here's a. Absolutely. I reckon you and I could get onto this. How about we'll you 
we'll we'll get some uh, diggers and dump trucks up on the uh, up on the Earth's uh, up on the Moon's uh, crust there. Take some lunar uh, dust back and and bring it back for construction. If we're running out of sand, I mean that's. And I'd sort of say that flippantly, but I mean it very much in the way that we don't know what's out there, do we? We don't understand, um, you know, what what the the mineral compositions are and 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 how abundant these these um, uh, these things are that these resources are. That um, even that whole idea of um, you know nuclear fusion power that you know requires helium three that is available in reasonable abundancy on the moon that. I mean that in itself has huge, you know, uh, um, or you know, potential uh, advancements and ramifications Absolutely. for it, doesn't I'm it? I'm very keen that as we move into space and as we explore, that we do so with the goal of truly understanding the landscapes and the. I don't want to use the word ecosystems, but certainly the systems, the physical landscape systems of the places that we're going before we start changing them. Um, and the only reason I think that's really pertinent for Australia is that Australia is an example of, of people showing up, not, not taking the time to understand the landscape, understand the peoples, understand the culture, understand um, the way in which the water flows, the way in which the air moves, the way in which erosion happens. Just kind of treating it as like, ah, oh, here's the resources. Let's chop down some trees, and um, and and we're still struggling, I think, with the environmental impacts of that um, on an Australian level, with with bushfires and um, and environmental degradation in this country. That lesson is something that I would like us to learn and. It's not to say that there aren't ways of sustainably, as you say, going and using lunar regolith to do better stuff on Earth, whether it's making cleaner sources of energy or um, or, or making sure that our flags stand up nice and straight. There's there's all sorts of there's all sorts of things that we can do. Uh, it's funny to me that they didn't think to uh, take a stand or something like they just assumed that they could just put it in there. Yeah, or, I, I or found just that really like bizarre. A chunk of blue tack or something. You like. <laughs> yeah, but but yes, let's let's um, learn from this. Let's learn from our our fallen flag and um, learn that we might want to spend a little bit more time getting to understand the places we're going um, before we start doing stuff with them. That might be a good idea and something that humans uh, could could look backwards and learn some lessons from from our own history. That would be a great thing to do. But yeah, uh, sure, why not? Yeah, let's let's do it. Um, flag stands for all, and and lunar regolith sprinkled on top of birthday cakes. I think it's a, it's absolutely going to sell. <laughs> so I've just got two more questions for you, Annie, um, before we wrap up. But Star Wars or Star Trek? <laughs> Can I say both? I love Star Trek to bits, but uh, I also love a good classic Star Wars film. No, uh. Oh, if you if you really twist my arm, Star Trek. Yeah, interesting. So, I I think I think I'm right in saying this that Star Wars was the first movie that I ever uh. went to see with my dad, 
and I loved it. I, I'm, I'm, I love Star Wars, but I, I, I ask that question because I'm not a Star Trek fan. I've never really watched Star Trek. I don't know what it is. It's quite cat. It's a bit like the Roadrunner to me. Um, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't have a problem it's with that. It's not as cool. It's I not know. as glossy anyway, around the edge. Um, Maybe. But I find it really I find it really interesting that Star Wars is, I mean, the whole idea of Star Wars is set about conflict and it's set about resources and, and trade. And, and that's the back plot of, of Star Wars. It's actually, you know, quite adversary, um, the, the setting. And, and uh, whereas from what I understand with Star Trek, you know, it seems to be much more about um, you know the the voyage and the exploration, and they they're quite you know, they're similar, but they're you know they're very different. It's almost, I guess, you know, like what we're looking at at the moment as to um, you know, I guess I'm trying to say that at the moment we they're looking at trying to regulate or control. Um, you know, the exploration and exploitation of space that sort of Star Wars sits at the exploration size and Star Trek more at the exploration size. I think you've put it really well. I think that is a fundamental difference between them. Star Trek is cultural diplomacy and Star Wars is... I think someone else recently said uh, in one of my podcasts that it was Star Wars is realist and Star Trek is cosmopolitan. Um if, if you want to think in terms of international relations yeah, theory. Right. But they are different. Um, but like you, like the only reason I, I picked Star Trek is because I have fond memories of watching it with my dad. So, you know, it was the first, it was yeah. the first big yeah. like guy <laughs> movie. Uh, that was kind of what it was sold to me as or, um, or action film or whatever that I went to see. And I went because we had a spare ticket and dad was like, oh, why don't you come along with, with me and your brother's? And I absolutely loved it. This is the first next-gen reboot that came out of Star Trek in the movies. Uh, blew my mind. Great movie. Uh, so, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, I think, yeah, to be honest, it, it's, um, it's more about my, my sense of um, nostalgia that I pick Star Trek just as you pick Star Wars. And maybe that says yeah. more about us as humans. We're much more emotionally driven than we think. Oh, absolutely. We're hugely emotionally driven. I think that's uh, – we try to deny that, but that's um, that's in our DNA without a doubt. So I've got to ask, yep. final question, is of there life out life there? Of course there's life out there, but not as we know it. <laughs> oh, I love it. But not as we know it. <laughs> yes, yes, 100%. I love it. You say you say so that so yeah. say that so confidently. Yeah, I'd like to believe there is something else speaking, as well. I think it's highly improbable that um, that there isn't something out there somewhere. Um, whether or not we'll ever make contact, or you know. Thought you were going to give me an emotional answer there, Annie. Not the uh, <laughs> oh, scientists look, I, come I out. I feel like you. I have to be rational at some point, or your listeners will get the wrong idea about me and think. <laughs> I'm all about, you know, warm, fuzzy feelings and, and, and nice sunsets looking at the stars, which I am. But also, um, no, just, just from a, a pure mathematics perspective, there's life out there. And, and I think it's really exciting. And even if we never find it, I think it's nice to think about it. 
Yeah, what a great way to to uh, to wrap it up. Is is there anything else that you'd like to add to our discussion no, today? I think this Annie? has been really interesting. I'd like to look. What I would like to say is to anyone still listening, um, thank you for for listening to something as esoteric and bizarre as space law and the implications for property. This has been a really interesting experience for me and. I've really enjoyed the discussion. It's made me think about things in a whole lot of new ways. So, um, yeah, to, to anyone listening, thank you for listening. And p- please feel free to reach out and get in contact with me. Um, I'm on social media stuff as at Annie Hanmer, uh, crossing jurisdictional boundaries daily. And I'll put all that in the um, in the yeah, in the um, get, show notes. But you got to tell our peeps. No, no, you got to tell our peeps that you run an uh, awesome podcast yourself, Annie. So right. you've got to um, give yourself well, a plug for sure. I do have a podcast. Sure. It's called Space Junk. It's the one with the purple logo. Um, the other one started a month after mine and stole my name, but um, we've never discussed it. Um, but no, no, oh, I, really? I love their podcast too. <laughs> Is yeah, that like yeah. a Star Wars, I love, Star I love Trek thing? Is that one too? It's about astronomy or something. But no, um, space junk. <laughs> I basically have cups of tea and, and chats with a bunch of people doing weird stuff in the space sector, from um, space espionage to space archaeology to space politics and everything in between. So if you're feeling like you need a little bit more space in your life, definitely come and check out the podcast. And um, and yeah, just feel free to get in contact. I mean, if Jeremy hadn't got in contact, I, I wouldn't have thought about property in this way um, on a Friday morning. And I'm super glad that I did. So it's it's really exciting to have people out there who are interested because space is for all of us. And in a way, we all own the moon in, in a metaphorical sense. Absolutely. You got any other projects that you want to plug, Annie, that uh, that you're involved in at the moment? Because you're pretty yeah, busy um, in the space network. I've got a few network. things coming up. So in September, I'll be doing a residency at the Sydney Observatory, which will run for a couple of months. And I'll be putting out a bunch of podcast interviews with people at the observatory, basically getting an idea of how does this thing work and operate and, and what's going on in space. So definitely keep a lookout for that project. And the other one that I'll plug is... Um, Professor Stephen Freeland, who's a professor of international law, and myself have just put together and launched a new course with Hong Kong University, um, which we're teaching from October through November. And that is an eight-week online-only course, um, which is all about space law, politics, and space ethics. And the whole idea of it is that it is open to anybody. You don't have to be doing a degree. You can just enrol and join us to learn about all of these topics in more detail. So it's kind of the first course of its kind. Normally, space law is is very siloed and um, there are a lot of gates to accessing it. We wanted to create something that was more open. And also, it's a little bit more experimental. It's called The Hitchhiker's Guide to Space Law, and it's based around... um, narrative discussion <laughs> approaches rather than go away and read this legislation and then and then be bored. So it's a, it's a different kind of thing. So if you're really interested and you're that interested that you want to actually take a course, um, do come and join and you can look that up online as well. That's uh, that's awesome, Annie. Look, thanks so much for um, for joining me today. I've really enjoyed this. It's a uh, it's been a it's really been a interesting delight. conversation. Um, and I 
Oh, you're very welcome. I reckon I might get you back on at some stage too because there's quite a bit to, to talk to. We I didn't know, even touch I on know. Antarctica today. There was too much else to cover, um, which is a whole, I love that. I really love that. We, yeah, we will definitely um, we'll definitely do that later on. So, look, let's wrap it up there. It's um, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for our listeners for um, uh, for tuning in and uh, and listening to uh, to Annie. Um, of course, if you want to get in contact with us, you know, do so at uh, PAFO Pod. So PAFO is the acronym for Property Australia's Favourite Obsession. We'd love to help you on your property journey. So get in touch, you know, uh, reach out to us, whether you're looking to acquire a property or help with your lending needs or just on your financial journey. I've had a cracking time today. Annie, well done. Thank you. Um, for, our, uh, uh, for our listeners, don't forget to like, subscribe and leave us a rating or review. I've been your host, Jeremy Cowan. And until next time, let's keep obsessing about property. Any opinions or recommendations expressed should be considered general in nature, as they do not consider your personal objectives or financial circumstances. You should therefore consider these matters yourself before deciding whether the advice is appropriate to you and if you should act upon it. Should advice be sought, please seek an appropriately qualified advisor. Investing may not be appropriate for everyone, as there is inherent risk and the possibility of loss when investing in financial assets, just as there is the possibility of profits. While useful for identifying patterns, History and past performance do not guarantee future performance. Calvin Flack has a commercial relationship with guests appearing on this production.